Welcome to episode 315 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Thursday, 8th of December, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Licorice All Sorts, Rhubarb, and a multi-award-winning biography of the hard-as-nails transportation cyclist Beryl Burton, who also won a few things like, you know, world championships, but not, as author Jeremy Wilson here explains, Olympic medals. I'm Colton Reed, and this episode of the Spokesman podcast runs long, very long. But listen in, and you'll be as transfixed as I was by Jeremy's stellar research. His biography of Beryl Burton says it's in search of Britain's greatest athlete. But as we discuss, Beryl is probably the world's greatest athlete, capable in her day of coasting past the best men of her era and famously giving them encouragement, brickbats or jersey pocket stashed sweets. We talked for two hours and it could have been much more. Are you, are you, are you yeah. sitting comfortably, Jeremy? I am, yeah, I'm all good, thanks. Okay, so let, let's leap into it. Well, I, I loved your book, obviously, as has everybody else, of course. So uh, congratulations on uh, William Hill, Times Sports Book of the Year, Financial Times Best, Best Sports Book of 2022, Waterstones, Best, you've won everything, haven't you? Is there anything you haven't won this year, Jeremy? <laughs> I don't know, it's a bit of a... It's a, bit of a... <laughs> Surprise! A pleasant surprise to 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 have people say nice things about it because obviously you you don't really know when you're you're in a bit of a tunnel when you do these things you don't quite know what people are going to think and it was really important to me as well that the family they didn't they place no sort of requirements or um, they didn't ask me to change anything or leave something out or not speak to a certain person and the big thing for me really was that they thought thought it was a fair portrayal and that they. They learned new things as well, which was nice mm. to hear because I don't think Beryl was a big talker. You know, it wasn't that that mentality wasn't um, to talk, you know, share your feelings and talk about things that she was always on to the next thing. So I think Denise found it interesting to hear what other people thought about her mum and, and certain stories that she didn't know as well. So, yeah, it's it's been lovely to to get such a nice reaction to it. And there's also Yvonne. Uh, Reinders also she you kind of like gave her stuff that she didn't know like you know the the fact she was like you know feeling bad that 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 day yeah yes yeah she didn't it was quite interesting because you could there was such a deep emotional connection between Yvonne Renders and obviously Beryl that you could still see really exists and, and you can imagine that that would be so because they obviously spent about a decade as main rivals and they would see each other mostly just at the world championships but maybe at the odd invitational event you know Avon Renders would come over to Herne Hill and Beryl might mm. go and do something in Belgium but 
generally they had this distance and Yvonne Renders speaks no English as I discovered and speaks quite a strong dialect um Flemish dialect mm. which even even the people I was with were were struggling with a little bit at times so and and obviously Beryl was pure Yorkshire so they didn't communicate but there was this it was quite touching really because when I got out um Beryl's autobiography personal best which I took with me mm. Yvonne Renders had never seen it and she she thumbed straight away to the photograph section and of course she was in some of the pictures there was a few podiums and a few pictures of them racing as well one of them on the Isle of Man and she was quite tearful when she saw them and she didn't really know the wider story of what happened to Beryl after she finished competing at the world stage and was quite emotional really about that and hearing what had happened to Beryl very clearly remembered Charlie Beryl's husband and Denise Beryl's daughter from seeing them at these competitions but it got me I mean there were so many tangents and that, that, that was fascinating about the story but that one about the sort of the relationship between rivals in sport I found quite interesting to think about because you can imagine there is a really they're, they're, at the time they're such ferocious competitors they probably wish the other one wasn't there because they were you know they would have double the world championships almost without the other one but I think over time they come to almost appreciate the fact that they were racing against someone so good because it brought them to a higher level, you know, a bit like the tennis now with or the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic era, and um, you sort of see it in other other sports as well. So yeah, yeah I found Armstrong that... and Ulrich, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, I found that. So quite we'll, we'll get on to yeah. Yvonne. I'm, I'm sure we'll get yeah. on to Yvonne again, but just you kind of like mentioned there that like the. That she didn't know, Yvonne didn't know her post-racing career. And of course, uh, Beryl died young, but what, what, relatively young, but what you say in the book is, is you, because you've gone to interview all of these, these people who are racing against uh, Beryl, who, who are, are, are of a goodly age. And you say in, in the book, you say, you know, cycling has probably extended these people's lives. Whereas, of course, in Beryl's case, it, it, it didn't. But do you think that, you know, that the standard, um, thing where you know cycling is meant to give you an extra ten years of, of of your life. Did you actually think Beryl's life was actually cut short by the fact she was so well, Yorkshire grit and always pushing through? I know yes. you're not. It's not medical, so you can't say that. Yes. But did you have a feeling there? Yes, I, th- I think so, and I think it's that's pretty clear because she was she had this illness as a child where um, she had this uh, attack of the the nervous system um, and had rheumatic fever, uh, an illness called St Vitus Dance, and was in hospital and then convalescing for two years um, at the age of eleven to thirteen, and she was told. Um, when she went back home not to ex- extend herself physically and she did a medical when she first began work at the age of 15 as well in the, the a tailor's called Montague Burton where she met Charlie Burton and um, it, they, again they, they found this irregular rhythm in her heart so she was pushing through that throughout her career and she did have particularly in her last 10-15 years you know, repeatedly looking at the, the newspaper and magazine cuttings, she was t- reporting that doctors were telling her that she must stop, she shouldn't keep pushing herself. Um, Denise, her daughter, told me that, that she and her her dad, Charlie Beryl's husband, were telling her to stop. I don't think they wanted her to stop cycling, but they wanted her to stop 
wanting to go as fast as she possibly could because obviously like as you said something that was really nice to to see about the book was that so many of her contemporaries she Beryl would be 85 now if she lived mm. were still really thriving you know had great recollections of of what they did a lot of them were still riding their bikes mm. um you know to their 80s even 90s in some cases and so it was a good advert for cycling overall but clearly Beryl had this competitiveness in her this sort of need to strive to do her very best and she she came into the sport with these um heart issues that that were caused by her childhood illness and she just ignored it she just wouldn't have it you know she just wouldn't stop and that was obviously the spirit that drove her to train so hard and and produce these just extraordinary feats but it, it was entwined with her early death almost certainly as you say obviously medically I'm not qualified to say for sure that there was a direct correlation but certainly that's I think that's I'm fair to say that's how her family feel that's very lightly and um, she was being told not to push herself and she was still going for it was the national 10 mile championships the following weekend she was entered and she wasn't people assume that because she was in her late 50s and still riding that she was still sort of turning up in a in a slightly more sociable way but she was still out there to win in her mind you know that was what all her friends and people who were cycling at the time said not 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 in a sort of nasty way in any way she was still chat chatty after the races but she couldn't approach it any other way she wanted to be the absolute best and fastest she could and she was still doing huge numbers of miles there was an interview with her with the BBC that I um, came across that was from about 94 95 I think she said I need 30,000 miles before I'm ready to race you know before each season I think that was the right number that might be completely ridiculous I need to do my maths I'm pretty sure that it's in the book but I'm pretty sure that was what she said and that was you know when she was in her late 50s so um, yeah and so I, I found that fascinating that drive that she had which I think you find in quite a few great sports people and but it obviously was almost certainly linked to to her um to tragically cut short life really but um yeah it's hard it's hard to separate the two because it was obviously part of what made her or, or very much what made her so extraordinary so I would like to delve into that that psychology because you certainly delve into it. I also in this episode I, w- I want to absolutely talk about how you took her bike and you put it on you know in the, in the wind tunnel. That's that's also fascinating about you know what she'd do today if if <laughs> if you could you can you could compare uh, those two things. But I'd, I'd very much like to start where you, you both started and ended your book with this story, and it is it is the story that I guess everybody in cycling knows. You know, there's a there's a, a a podcast BBC podcast called You're Dead to Me and that has a, a segment called So What Do You Know and that is the segment where you know the, the the presenter says you know this is the bit that people will probably know about this particular historical figure and then they they massively uh, expand on it so that the thing that I think most people certainly in, in, in cycling will know is the licorice all sort story yes. so even even I you know know that story and I'm not 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 the greatest of, uh, of 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 cycle racing fans. I'm like more of a like a Tour de France kind of person. I don't follow every single race throughout the year, but even I know that that <laughs> that story. So, 
just for, for anybody who maybe doesn't know that story, and I'm, 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 I'm kind of like maybe um, being very abusive to, to listeners here by saying you, you, know, you do or you don't know this story, but just tell us about the story because it's a very famous story. And the, 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 the protagonist, who, who obviously uh, is involved in this story as well, Mac. Yes, Namara. yeah, a guy called Mike McNamara. And he was the top men's um, time trialist of the time in Great Britain. So time trialing was the main way that people raced in that period in the really uh, up until quite recently, where now I think the sort of sportives, road racing and, and track racing is is become bigger in this country because of the facilities and because of the um just this like changing culture with with how british cycle cycle racing has evolved but in that time it was time trialing was very much the way people people raced and that's when you're set off at one minute intervals and then you you essentially ride alone and 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 have a time at the end over a a distance or a, a particular um, amount of time so so Beryl was going for this 12 hour ride which is where you you do as many miles as you can in 12 hours but a big competition at, at the time in 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 Great Britain um, she started behind the men so then there was 99 men in in this race going off at one minute intervals they then had a two minute gap to the women I think there was three or four women um, Beryl was among them and she was the first of the women to go off so she was basically set off two minutes behind a field of 99 men who had all started in the in the two hours before Beryl in the morning and they would all then go ride round Yorkshire finishing on a finishing circuit for 12 hours and accumulate as many miles as they could. Um, It really suited Beryl this type of race because she had a great phenomenal endurance but also really good concentration as well she could she could ride alone for a long time at a high level and uh, she basically just rode through this entire field of men so she'd passed 98 of the men one person that was left was Mike McNamara the top men's time trialist of the time he'd started last of the men so he'd started two minutes in front of Beryl um, on the road and he was on course to break the men's record for the distance that they cycled in 12 hours. But Beryl had done this sort of incredible ride and was basically catching him and actually caught him with about uh, about an hour of the of the 12 hours to go. So she she didn't when she saw him up in front, she didn't quite believe that it was was him. She had caught, as I say, they'd both caught the other 98 men, which is astonishing when you think about it but she, there he was the the last of, of the the men she hadn't caught and he was on course for a British men's record or a, a world record as well I mean no 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 one in other countries had gone faster and she was obviously annihilating the women's record but was also beating him and she and she eventually passed him on this uh this lane which is just south of Borough Bridge in in Yorkshire and as she went past she would always say something to people when she caught them because obviously she caught people all the time and and caught men very regularly in these time trials and she'd say things uh, I mean there were so many stories of things she would say like hey lad you're you're not trying or Mm -hmm. stick in there Chuck (laughs) or so you know sometimes be quite nice but sometimes in a sort of dry sense of humor she'd sort of say something quite cutting to these people Mm -hmm. And to Mike McNamara, she reached into her back pocket where where she's carrying her food and she passed him a licorice all sort as she went past. And uh, 
he said tarlav and uh, and ate the licorice also he he confirmed it to me um while i was researching the book that it wasn't just a kind of fairy tale myth type story mm. that had gone down in legend it really was how it went it, she didn't really mean it i don't think as a sort of um put me down she just didn't know what else to do <laughs> she went past him and um and the poor guy would then get handed massive licorice all sorts of events yeah, <laughs> in it, later became years. All, yeah <laughs> it became all he ever got asked about and um <laughs> yeah they, there was a, a, a an event where Beryl presented him with a huge licorice <laughs> yeah. also I think he took it in good spirits his, his brother he, he actually died last year and um but luckily from my point of view, he was still alive during the early part of the research for the book. So I was able to um, communicate with him before he before he died. And he was a, a, obviously a really great figure in, in on the scene, a, a really popular, popular guy. But he, 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 you could tell it did slightly. There was a slight sense from the family that. You know, it was frustrating that his he was sort of uh, remembered principally for this. But I, I sort of said to them, what an amazing thing to be part of. You know, it's a real moment in sporting history where a, a, a woman broke not just a, a women's best, but a men's as well. And as I say, mm. lots of things with Beryl Burton. This was obviously one of them where she'd done something that just nobody in any other sport you could find a, a comparison for. So mm. it was she you know won something 25 she was the best british all rounder 25 times in a row rode with her daughter in the world championships but they were both in the qualified for the road race and and this i mean they were three things straight away that you just could were completely without comparison in in sport so yeah that that was probably the story that she's best known for just uh, i think the 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 fact that she b- broke a men's record but also just the style with which he did it. And as I say, the the the, the drama of passing him and giving him a, a licorice mm. also. Um, and I, I, as a road historian, I'm also, I, I love the fact that you pretty much pinpointed the exact spot on the road <laughs> where there really ought to be a plaque or some sort of, you know, yeah. thing there. Somebody said that to me. They went, a guy called John Churchman, who was a marshal on the Otley, it's called the Otley 12 Hour, because um, they were the club that organised it. And it took quite a lot of work to figure it all out. We really worked hard to make sure we got it right. Someone called Phil Hurt from the Yorkshire Road Club um, found me the, the course. Um, then John Churchman and a guy called George Baxter, who was also a marshal, um so they they were at different points in in the the route so they could help me with with knowing exactly where it was um that Beryl passed and and also you could there there was a lot in the results sheets and just the media reports of the time and what Beryl and uh, Mike McNamara had said we got it to pretty much the precise stretch of road it was a long stretch of road where you could definitely see somebody in the distance and as I say that was borne out in Beryl's recollections of it where she could see his jersey in in the distance and and wasn't initially certain that it was him so yeah for the final chapter the epilogue of the book we I cycled the finishing circuit with Denise Beryl's daughter and we sort of pulled over at that point and sort of had a look up and down the road and um just tried to think what you know what her mum might think of uh, what we what we were doing actually, and uh, Denise sort of surprised me because she took off her um she she was wearing she had another jersey on top and she took off her her Morley she had her Morley club jersey on which was the jersey that her mother always always the club her mother always rode for and she sort of said I thought I'd put it on for her and she she didn't know 
where it was on the uh, course herself, even though she actually lives quite close, probably only about 10 or 15 miles away. She didn't she didn't know where it was. It was another thing because it just her mother was a very sort of Yorkshire person, you know, not, not much emotion, not much, certainly no showing off or dwelling on anything or no trophies up in the in the house or she, it was always on to the next thing. And so she wouldn't they weren't the sort of people that would have really kind of made a fuss about where it was and how it happened. Obviously, I did. <laughs> but, but you know, she just didn't she didn't know. She was like, oh, right, I didn't know this was where the Utley 12 hour happened. I was there, you know, she was there in the car that day as about an eight year old or nine. Is that about right? Yeah, 11 year old she would have been, but she wasn't actually, um, she didn't know which bit of road it was that, that, that it happened. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. It definitely needs a plaque. Um, let, let, let's actually dig into your background um, because we haven't mentioned that yet. So you, you've obviously been somewhere warm recently, um, <laughs> if you want to talk about that. And yeah. then, then if you could, t- so tell us what your kind of your day job is and then tell us your background in cycling. Yeah, so my day job is um, I'm a sports journalist at The Telegraph, but um, principally doing a lot of football. So I've just been to the World Cup in Doha. I'm I'm back after the last 16 phase. So and I've been doing that really for 20 years. I was at a local newspaper in Hampshire and then um, worked for The Guardian and The Telegraph for the last um, 15 years so lot, lots of football but some other sport as well a bit of I've done a few Olympics and um, you know I love doing other sports but obviously football is so dominant in the kind of sports news cycle I do end up doing a huge amount of football and um, the book really came about because uh, somebody was interested in me doing a book about football and kind of the geopolitics of football with the ownership now of, of teams obviously from you know, by by virtual nation states or some of the you know richest people in the world that that, that we know about at clubs mm. like Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain and obviously Chelsea before with Roman Abramovich and, and Newcastle, like, where I live, mm. and Newcastle now, mm. yeah. So that was mm. the premise of this meeting about mm. sort of, and I kind of I, I obviously do a lot of stuff around that day to day, and I wasn't that sort of keen to to do that for whatever reason and and they sort of like what have you got any book ideas and I was a club cyclist as a as a as a kid um my family was sort of club cyclists so I kind of knew the name Beryl Burton because I was a bit of a sort of stats nerd and I'd look at um, you know records and times and who who'd won the most FA Cups and who'd won you know in any sport who'd won Olympic medals and and uh, I remember we had we used to get this handbook through the post every year which was the it's called the RTTC handbook of, of of events for you know cycling events in Britain and it had the lists of all the champions and records and I re- distinctly remember this thumbing through it and and reading and saying who's this because Beryl Burton won 122 national titles. So, so the back of this book, it was just B. Burton, B. Burton, B. Burton. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember, and I can vividly remember this. I'm not just sort of, it's, it's not sort of recollection that's kind of embellished in any way. I remember seeing that 12-hour record that we just talked about where she bettered the men's record. And I remember looking at it and seeing it in this book and saying, oh, this must be wrong or this is a misprint. And so I think somewhere in my subconsciousness, Beryl Burton's name was was lodged. And and then when um, 
obviously i didn't do anything about it for a few decades and 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 but post 2012 when there was all this uh um publicity rightly so for all the cyclists that had done so well in the olympics and that generation of british cyclists the sort of bradley wiggins victoria pendleton chris hoy um I was kind of at that time there were all these lists of the greatest British sports person or the greatest cyclists and I was looking at them I was thinking what, what about that Beryl Burton you know and I, I just I, I knew she'd won loads and loads and loads and obviously she wasn't being given anything like a due billing in these in these sort of lists of sports people even though she would have surpassed any of them if she would have had a olympics available to her or had a tour de france available to her so it got me it got me back interested and um i I looked at her her book which was published in the mid 1980s personal best and sort of researched the story a bit more and just discovered all these wonderful tangents and sort of subplots because I, i mentioned her childhood illness you know just her relationships with um her husband who sort of gave everything up to support her her daughter who she ended up competing with just how she went on and on and kind of the circumstances of her early death you know when I when I came back to it and looked I hadn't even realized I wasn't sure whether she was alive or dead I just knew that she was this phenomenal athlete and so I suppose when the more I looked into it from a sort of journalistic point of view I thought wow there's some fascinating subplots here that you could really get into you know the competition with the soviet union riders was another one um and you mentioned the wind tunnel and you know how trying to work out how far she would be so there was all this extra stuff from a journalist's point of view that i thought wow that's amazing i think if she just won loads and loads and loads and there wasn't a sort of fascinating human interest story i would have sort of thought well you know is there a book in all of that but there was just so much else and my my eyes were kind of widening and my jaw was falling closer to the ground when I sort of the more I learned about her really and I just thought this is just an incredible story and then fortunately um, because it wouldn't have been any fun and it wouldn't I wouldn't have done it if the family were sort of very resistant to the idea and it'd be wrong to say that they were um, sort of out there encouraging it or say you know looking for people to sort of amplify her achievements they're very sort of humble not on social media not sort of shouting about Beryl but quietly very proud and it you know it was a relationship where you sort of build trust over months and years really with them because it was a four-year process um from starting the book to, to 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 it being published and um more than a four just over four years so um they weren't as i say they weren't looking for it but equally i think they liked that they they liked the fact that someone seemed to really appreciate what she had done and really just thought she was as incredible as obviously privately they you know in in a very as i say in a very sort of understated way they 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 basically agreed, you know, that she was she was just this incredible athlete that did, hadn't got the recognition um, that, that that she deserved, and they're just sort of lovely, as I say, lovely kind of humble people that that didn't they weren't sort of bragging about Beryl, but really proud of her, and also kind of got got this was really important. They understood that you kind of needed to tell the whole story and 
we needed to deal with the more difficult parts of her character like anybody would have you know and the difficult parts of the family relationships like anybody would have but they didn't they didn't shy away from that or say you know and, and not want you to speak to someone who might be critical of her they kind of got that you had to tell it as it was and in fact I almost got the sense from Denise that she probably got a bit weary sometimes of just reading very sort of short superficial things saying you know legend Beryl Byrne she was amazing wasn't she wonderful full stop sort of thing she she she, you know, there was a lot more to her story than, than that and a lot more to her personality than that. And fortunately for me, they were they were happy with me sort of delving into that as well as all, all the fabulous achievements because it's all interlinked, obviously, and it, it wouldn't make sense to do it in, in any other way. But you never really know how a family member's going to react and to, to you sort of asking things that, you know, are quite might feel quite personal, but... They kind of had that Yorkshire honesty about them, you know, and were quite happy to deal with it in the round. But obviously they wanted, they felt it should overwhelmingly be a celebration of her life, which hope, hopefully it is. But it's still in that context of um, of, of dealing with it as a whole and, and trying to tell the whole story. So that was that was so important to the project that, that they were as they were. And it made it such a pleasure as well. And I, I've said this a few times and I on it, I'm truly mean it, you know, it's lovely to get all people saying nice things about the book, but to, to have a sort of friendship now with, with them and, you know, get nice messages from them. And um, Denise is, you know, always happy to come to things where we talk about it and the book as well. And that's like the nice, been the nicest part really of getting to, getting to know them and that that part of Yorkshire so I'm, I'm really lucky on that sense that that they were as they were about the book in those four years of writing you, you must have been thinking you know from a commercial point of view perhaps even from a professional point of view you really ought to be doing a football book that book you, <laughs> you talked about and this is like you might be thinking you know this is so niche okay you might, might, might win a you know a cycling of the book year award but uh you know this is just not mainstream enough but you, you've made it mainstream. So, so did you have that inkling of this is so niche? Why am I doing this? Or was it always I want to get this story out there? This is really mainstream, and I can make it mainstream. What What were your feelings? I did. I mean, that did it. Did occasionally cross my mind that you because obviously there's quite a lot of you know without sort of trying to wail about the the process of it. There's so many little obstacles or tricky bits or hard moments or parts where other things are going on in your life when you think oh am I sort of you know being a bit hard on my family you know I've got two young children and you sort of I'm doing a job as well and you sort of you know is it a bit of a sort of it should I be doing you know keep plowing on with this but I that the, genuinely just the I didn't think that much about how it would be received or whether it be mainstream or niche or whether I kind of just stuck with the fact that I thought it was an amazing story. So I kind of hoped that other people would agree. And also I just felt ge genuinely such a passion for it myself and so interested in it myself. I just wanted to do it. I wanted to find out more. I wanted to write about it. So it wasn't a hardship really to to do that rather than something that might be more obvious commercially because I just thought wow this is such an amazing sports story you know I've been doing lucky enough to do sports journalism for 20 years and it to me it's like the most amazing story that I've ever come across so why wouldn't I want to keep going with it so that was what kept 
keeps you going it's just like wow this is amazing and I don't, I don't think you can worry too much about how it, 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 it I, I, I didn't quite know how it would turn out but I didn't sort of think that much about it because I was so sustained by my own passion for it really and just you know quite it sounds a bit funny but it's quite sort of you uh, you know you think about it all the time and you think and I, I'd feel quite emotional at times just thinking about the 12 hour record or certain rides or certain the way she carried on and stuff like that. So it just completely got me, you know, at, at so many levels that it just wasn't it, it, that I wasn't going to stop and I wasn't going to not do it because I was just so into it. Fun, funnily enough, Denise said something to me the first time I met her and, and it, and I thought about it often because I, I think she sort of met me and thought, well, we'll, we'll see whether he, that completes it or not really you know which is fair enough I'd think the same if some stranger come and met me and said I would like to do this but she said something about her mother and she said um and then she sort of related it to me she said well if someone really wants to do something they'll do it (laughs) and it sounds quite simple really and she said that about her mother as well at different times that you can't really someone really wants to do something they will find a way to do it and I and so it wasn't in a way it wasn't that hard to to get it done because I just love the story and so much really wanted to to do it so um yeah it it obviously does take over your mind at different sections and it was important to balance my day-to-day work with it but um yeah just a such a fascinating story that I think that was what sustained me you know it wasn't anything to do with whether it did well or not really it was just it was just I wanted to tell that story. And I, I think if you have that sort of passion for it, you're probably on the right tracks because, you know, nine times out of 10, other people will find it interesting as well. And um, there's so many people that had stories about Beryl as well that, you know, even today, even the, this last week, I get messages literally every week from people who, having read the book, sort of have a, it prompts the, a memory or prompts something because she was so out there. She was so as Maxine Peake would put it, ordinary, extraordinary. So, so there was all these everyday encounters that people had with her. Um, and I just loved, I loved hearing them. I still do, you know, sometimes, sometimes wish I wish I knew that before I wrote the book, but mostly, so, so, mostly I'll just jump in there, Joe, because Maxine Peake, of course, is the person who wrote the, the play um, about Beryl, which, which brought her back much more in, into, into public consciousness, you know, those, those few years ago. Um, so had you seen the play before? no do you know what I didn't it was a few people thought it might have been prompted by the play it absolutely wasn't but I was delighted when I uh the first thing I did was listen to the radio play on on radio four and then I went to see it um and I've seen it a couple uh two two twice now I went once with um Beryl's brother Jeffrey um it was on in Beverly and we went along and watched it and then I watched it when it was on in London as well but I was delighted when I discovered that there was a play because it was kind of like another thing that um, I thought, well, that's interesting that, that people have sort of outside of cycling have connected with it on that level. And it'd be good to speak to Maxine Peake and understand why she was so interested in the story. So it, I, I discovered the play, obviously, fairly early on in the, the research. Um, and it was just, an, as I say, another thing that I thought, well, that's good. You know, that shows that it's got a sort of um a pool outside of cycling uh but it wasn't it, it, it as i said it wasn't it wasn't a trigger to to do it but it was 
it was something you couldn't obviously you couldn't help but stumble across it fairly quickly once you once I started researching and um it, it was just a, a, a really nice extra thing because it was just fascinating to talk to people who weren't into cycling the actors and Maxine Peake herself about what it was about Beryl that had sort of touched them and connected with them and it definitely has brought it to a wider audience because quite a few of the people I've spoken to someone like Dame Catherine Granger who was a Olympic medalist as, as most of your listeners will know in five Olympics in rowing she found she discovered Beryl Burton via the play and sort of was really moved by it the these folk singers oh oh and Tito have to get that right um they wrote a song about Beryl on the back of seeing the play so it definitely um was something that 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 connected with quite a lot of people outside of cycling and coming back to you again are you a transportation cyclist as well as having that club background um yeah to some extent probably is not as much as i should be but i do yeah i've got a couple of bikes and i do i've kind of got ones that i will go out on the road a bit further on and a sort of mountain bike to to get around on but i love i love cycling as well now i do i do love cycling but not not fast and not competitively but do a few sportives and my my kids are in a cycling club in hampshire as well so i go along and and sort of uh watch them do cyclocross and stuff like that so um yeah i love i love cycling and it's as i say it's something that my dad was a, a sort of touring cyclist so i suppose that's how we that's how we we came to it but um yeah i think it's a it's a it's a, a brilliant sport and obviously a real great healthy pursuit when you look at as i discovered from big big difference from footballers you can't you don't meet many footballers sadly that um farewell in you know really late older age above the age of 80 but cyclists uh, they're they are numerous those that are mm, doing well. so keep quite on going on very anecdotal it, but it's, it's mm. absolutely true isn't it mm. So the transportation cycling in in the book is is, is fascinating. You know the, the those you know long distance rides she would do. The, obviously, the ride when she she died was was a transportation cycling, and then you know taking Denise as a as a baby and 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 then in a trailer and then on the back. All quite modern things to do now. You know this is this is a middle class you know um, thing to do. You, you know like a Copenhagen style Dutch style thing to do. But, you know, she was doing that, you know, in effect, uh, ahead, ahead of the curve. So her transportation cycling was just yeah. amazing. Her, her, her feats of cycling, amazing, of course. But just she went everywhere by bike. And the family, and there's beautiful pictures in the book of, you know, Denise and Charlie and, and Beryl, you know, riding together. So she she really lived cycling. She did everything on the bike, didn't she? I mean, she, if she could iron yeah. on the bike, those three hours of ironing she had to do every day, I'm sure she'd like to do it on a bike. It's a brilliant thing. Not that many people pick up on that, but it's such a great point because I've, I think there's probably a link to why she was so good as well, because she was doing lots of sort of easy miles um, on the bike, as well as the kind of what she would consider serious training. But she rode her bike everywhere and she would she would sort of say, I don't I, I, I have a break from cycling um, in the winter. And she'd really start again in January after um, the season would sort of end around September but of course she didn't stop at all really it was just in her mind she stopped because she she very much differentiated between those kind of casual cycling and when she was training but she would at the end of um, 
September every year when the World Championships were done and she'd won the British Best All-Rounder for the time trialling when all the races are done. They'd go off on holiday and Denise would miss the first two, three weeks of the school school term. They didn't really think much of, of worrying about that. And they'd go to the, for, especially when you think of the late 1960s, early mm. 1970s, they'd go to Morocco, Sicily, around Italy, France, um, really quite uh, Canary Islands, really quite um, far out places for the, for that, you know, for that, um, for that time. And just incredible stories of these touring um, holidays where they would just cycle sort of 30, 40 miles a day. And yeah, Denise, um, their, their one, one daughter who was, Beryl was 18 when she had Denise, she just became part of the cycling routine. So she, they'd be start off on a on a sort of sidecar side carriage kind of thing. Then she was on the seat on the back, you know, no no helmet or no, no not much strapping in. I don't think in those days. Um, and then she was on something called a ram trailer, which looks a bit like a tandem, but it's slightly different than a tandem. And then when she was about eight or nine, was plonked on her own bike, and basically it was right there. You go if you wanna if you wanna go to anything. That, that's how you get there. You, you go on your bike and. And quite often Beryl and would be away for the weekend cycling and Denise at, from about the age of nine would simply cycle, you know, 11 miles from Woodlesford where they lived to Morley, um, just sort of south of Leeds, both of those two places on her own, you know, to her grandmother's for the weekend. And uh, mm. they went everywhere by bike. So if Beryl raced in London, she might a 50 mile time trial on a Sunday morning she very often cycle home up the A1 mm. 170 miles or she would um if she went to a dinner dance uh, at the end of the season all the clubs held their dinner sort of dances she'd she'd take a dress in the saddlebag cycle there go to this event you know help wash the dishes afterwards and cycle home again at night um so just went everywhere by bike she never learned how to drive so all her sort of shopping trips to work, she worked on a rhubarb farm and she'd cycle to work. Everything she did, it, she'd, she'd go for a month early early season, sort of February, March time to um, Spain every year. And she would just get, so, fly to, um, it was near sort of Mallorca type. No, um, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, sort of Benidorm, Benidorm. Sorry, that's what's in my brain. She she would sometimes go to Mallorca, but Benidorm was her normal one, and she would just fly there, get off the plane, have a saddlebag full of her stuff for the next month, and cycle to, you know, a very sort of basic apartment, and she would and and just train there for a month every year. So she did everything by bike, and as I say, sports scientists were quite interested in that as well, uh, in terms mm. of kind of easy miles. You know, we we, we know the stories of. Um, the, the great African runners and how, how they kind of walk everywhere and go to from a young age go to school, sort of jog to school. So it's the, the the kind of easy easy activity miles that she was doing were probably a great foundation for for why she was so good. I mean, she must have. I tried to wake it work it out at one point how many miles she might have accumulated in her life. And it, it wasn't much off a million, you know, when you added it all up because she was riding three, four hundred miles a week. And and as I say, even when she was out of training, she was cycling the whole time. But she 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 had a, a very clear dividing line. She would sort of say, Oh no, I'm not training at the moment, 
but she'd still be out on her bike every day. You know? So um, yeah, that, that was a real big part of what she did. And and they would, that's one of the things that the older cyclists would regularly point out to me, how different it is now, because when people race now, they're in, in the car to the event, bike on the roof or bike on the back, get out, they'd get on the back of it, get on some rollers or a turbo trainer, which is a stationary thing to warm up. And then they, they'll race. That's kind of how, how nearly all, people who race do it now whereas Beryl's generation you'd you'd have these um hooks on the front of the handlebars and they would put their race wheels on there and so they'd have these wheels sort of dangling off the handlebars and they would cycle out to the race change their wheels race and cycle back um that you know that was just how how they did it in in that time but uh, as I say it's interesting because I think from a sports science point of view quite a lot of what she was doing was obviously helping her hugely um without quite knowing it as as an athlete Mm. as well as just the fact she obviously just loved riding her bike everywhere and of course famously and and from a a narrative you know circularity point of view for somebody writing a book she died on her bike as well so she's delivering birthday invitations in, in in going through harrogate and she basically keels over can i actually read from your book here now uh rather than you you know flicking yeah. through and, and, and finding it so this is a bit where uh you describe how she dies on her bike basically so it is a unique and yet instantly recognizable sound the whirring of a bicycle wheel freely rotating until it slowly stops not because a brake has been applied but because the momentum from that last push of a pedal has gradually ceased it was the fade this is beautiful this it was the fading sound that accompanied the last breath of Beryl Burton after she collapsed on the side of the road in May 1996, while out riding her bicycle on the outskirts of Harrogate, while out delivering invites for her 59th birthday. So that's kind of evocative, but also yeah. so circular. It's almost perfect. That she, I know nobody wants to die, of course, but as her, as Denise points out in the book, I mean, if she wanted to die, you know, she would definitely want to die on a bike and she wouldn't want to get old and be infirm. She'd kind of it's almost too perfect yeah it's weird but it's perfect yeah no and and i i was a bit uh, there was a sort of hesitation in almost describing it in those terms because obviously you're describing such a tragic mm. event mm. but they did that was very much how, how the family felt obviously they wished it would have been decades later but they definitely that there was a comfort that she died doing what she loved and you know a moment where she would have probably been lost in her thoughts because she just loved she she would say that she loved cycling for the mental side as well how it just freed her of the sort of stresses and worries of the world which I think a lot of people exercise and cycle for that reason so you'd imagine she would have been in a in that that mode whilst 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 that happened and um there was a quote as well from her when tom simpson as uh, famously the, mm. the tour de france cyclist died um on his bike going up mont Ventoux in in in, in the tour de france there's different circumstances because he was racing to the point of exhaust exhaustion at the time but it was reported that his last words were put put me back on my bike um there's you know it's, again it's a story that might not be 100 percent accurate but beryl beryl there was a quote from Beryl that I found where she said he could have no finer epitaph than than saying that so I think it gave you a clue as to how she might view the circumstances of her own death but obviously just decades 
sooner than everybody would have wished but that yeah there there is a sort of I, I don't know Maxine Peake said there's a poetry to 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 how that happened and um mm. I think and, and as I say the family definitely I know um both her brother and her daughter do take some comfort from the fact that that was that was how she how she died the the jockey AP McCoy that who, who was the 20 times champion jockey I spoke to him about Beryl because I was interested in how the longevity it was very similar to him to to keep going that number of years and he 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 was very taken with the circumstances of Beryl's death and he said it's perfect as well you know because mm. and, and he said that if he, he felt the same because obviously he's stared down the barrel in a different way um when he's fallen off horses and um you know it's a sport where there are fatalities and he 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 was very um quite moved by that and taken by that and 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 said that as well and it was quite that that stuck with me as well that sort of mindset of somebody who's so passionate about their sport but um as he and Denise said it was just sort of you just wish, wished it would have been when she was in her late you know 30 yeah. years um, yeah was but yeah very but but very sort of that 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 does really you know get to me to think about that you know it is is very evocative as you say and, and moving to, to things it's also quite unusual not not just in the you know the the fact she didn't get to, to to 80 years old but when when cyclists die as we all know it, it tends to be you know when when motorists knock into them and kill them so you know you know david rebellion has just uh, died by getting hit by a motorist so that's how cycling stars tend to die uh, many cyclists tend to die is getting hit by 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 motorists but she's just keeled over at the side of the road there was no other involvement nobody nobody saw it happen exactly but there's no there's no talk of it you know she's knocked her from her bike she just her heart gave out yes yes yeah absolutely there was like an an early media report that sort of assumed that 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 was Mm. that there must have been some sort of um road traffic incident but no that wasn't that wasn't the case and uh no, she was. There was a sort of full post mortem, and um, no, it was. She she had anemia as well, and it was her cause of death was heart failure and anemia. But um, I think from the, uh, I mean, Denise was kind enough to let me see the medical report from the post mortem, and um, you know, it was. It, it obviously her heart had. There was this uh, defect in it from, as I say, from a from a child, and that was very mm-hmm. evident in the. Um, in the post-mortem so that she'd ridden she'd ridden she she was risking her life every time she she went out on her bike you know that there was no she was she and she was told that repeatedly through her life you know? so it wasn't in a way it wasn't a surprise that she should have that problem it was one of those situations which was a horrible shock but you know rationally wasn't a surprise because she'd she'd been told this throughout her life um that she was she was taking you can also way. say it was it was it was part and parcel of her life as a cyclist because it's it's you know the, the, her formative uh life in the convent it, that 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 illness she had as a child um which which you you know quite expertly pick out in the book about like how super athletes super elite athletes often have some form of trauma yeah. in in their their childhood which which then drives them on to be these amazingly single-minded hyper-focused and never satisfied with just one win. They've got to keep on uh, winning. So that heart problem she had as a child, which which obviously she sadly died from, was also probably the reason 
she actually had that career in the first place of, as, as a psychiatrist. Yeah. So in that it, that illness and that you know time in the convent drove her and and, and changed her mental makeup. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was absolutely key. I don't think it was the only thing. I got to the point with it because it was really interesting that, that, that there was some research done in British Olympic athletes and they found that, that they grouped them as elites or super elites. And the super elites were the kind of repeat winners, the absolute relentless winners, which Beryl would have been one of those. And they had found this sort of staggering proportion that had had some sort of childhood trauma which could be quite different it could be sort of parents separating mm. um some sort of you know violence in the family or some so, uh, very very different types of trauma potentially um and and Beryl's was that she had this awful illness as a child um, but it was really common in these high achievers that that seemed to galvanize or give them a driving force a sort of need to win um, and a need to succeed, a need to do their very best, and she obviously had that. I think she also she her, her brother t- talked a lot to me about her childhood and their family, and she obviously came into it with a great a, a sort of she already had a kind of perfectionist type personality mm. and a stubborn stubbornness. He, he 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 called it the Charnock way, which was her her maiden name, and 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 said it was evident in a lot of family members, very sort of stubborn determined people and then I think the other I think the other factor was what Beryl then was fortunate to discover coming out of the illness because she met Charlie her husband who who was a club cyclist and she was fortunate that this group of cyclists in Morley in in just outside Leeds were just so welcoming so supportive so but very competitive as well so she the, the the people who are the experts on this childhood trauma say that it's kind of three factors. You, you've usually got some inherent characteristic and you've also got a, a supportive structure around you at the end of it. So it's kind of not something you recommend. You wouldn't recommend trauma to people, obviously, and it can offer, and it can be very destructive. But but with with those things around it, with those inherent characteristics and also the right support around you afterwards, it seems like it can be this added catalyst mm. that can drive someone to amazing things. And with Beryl, you can very, uh, and that was kind of a theoretical model, but with Beryl, you could very clearly identify those other components that they talked about because she 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 found this brilliant environment to, to, to cycle in that was very progressive because a lot of cycling clubs wouldn't allow women, but she, she at that time, but she, she happened upon one that was, welcoming to her and then they obviously became to love the fact that they had this incredible person in their club and they were really proud of her and really supportive of her so I think that was important as well she was very clearly proud of them too because I mean there was a quote that that you mentioned in the book where and this is this is her words uh which is one of another one of her amazing victories and she said I have notched up another victory for Morley and Great Britain so it's not, I have not, <laughs> yeah. you know, for, for, for Great Britain. I'm so it's like she mentions her cycling club first. Yeah. Like Great Britain's almost as a, as a as an afterthought. Yeah, that oh, she was. Well, she never she was offered many times to to, to be professional, but there, there, it wasn't professional in the terms of we think of professional cycling team. Now, there was no um, races or team that you could you, you, you didn't it didn't open the door to some 
continental scene of of earning lots of money and and riding in better races being professional just meant that you became an advertising tool for a bike company and there were certain records place to place records that you could go for but you wouldn't you, you would then be not allowed to race in any of the time trial events any of the world championships that she went for because it was very strict that the line between amateur and professional so going professional would have been financially quite good because she would have advertised bikes but she would have made no she would have had no um very quickly ended her competitive career so she very firmly stuck with riding for Morley Cycling Club and never went to a kind of a bigger club or anything like that and she was incredibly loyal and would always talk about them and I loved meeting all the personalities from the Morley Cycling Club because a lot of them were still alive and you know they were Beryl's. They were Beryl's team. They were Beryl's support structure at that time, and just again very, very down to earth. You know, club minded, brilliant. You know, Yorkshire people who are so 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 proud of Beryl. You know, some of them have got one of them still have one of her world championship jerseys, mm. the rainbow and jersey, hidden, hidden away that nobody knew about. Yeah, he had it under his bed. He went and got it for me, and it was like it was. Yeah. It was still pristine. And he said, I've never worn it because when Beryl gave it to me, she said, you can have this, but mind you never wear it because you didn't earn it. <laughs> and that was the kind of, she wanted him to have the jersey, but she was like, "It's, it's you haven't got the right to wear it. But um, he was so, you know, it was in a in a plastic bag and he kept it. It looked, it looked sort of, although it looked of the age, 1960s and was made of sort of, cotton uh sort of silk sorry it was it, but it was still um it was still perfectly maintained so they yeah they were so proud of her and she was very York, proud of Yorkshire she would in one of the world championships it's very noticeable she's got there's two two um Russians uh either side of her with the CCCP or Soviet Union um jerseys and she's got a she hasn't got a British jersey on it on that podium she's just got the Yorkshire rose on on a on a thing she's wearing so yeah very very proud of that um of her of her club and and background and Morley was very supportive to her because they the the um archives in Morley the local library have kept one of the really interesting sort of discoveries they kept all this correspondence between Beryl and um, the the Morley Town Council because they would organise these civic receptions for her when she came back and they'd raise money that it was a mill town so that all the workers in the mills and um, sort of social clubs would club together and sort of raise a hundred pounds or something for Beryl so that to help with her being able to go and cycle abroad in in these world championships so she had this great relationship with Morley and they're wonderful these letters because they're very formal to you know to, to and from. Um, the town council and Beryl, you know, inviting her to different receptions or, you know, helping with a kind of fun, you know, raffles and, you know, very basic sort of funding that, that, that but you could tell that the town really got behind her um, in that way. And some of that funding, which, which she couldn't spend in any other way was, was, didn't she spend it on a, on a, an effect of record? Yeah. Yeah. That, she it got, for a long, long time. Yeah. It got to a point where, and Denise, that was one of the things that Denise was sort of, she goes, I wondered where that had come. She goes, Oh, that record player still, I think she went and got it for me. And she, oh, that was in every one of her houses, but it, it, there was a letter from about 19, it was about 1964. There was some money left over from um, an event that they'd uh, funded Beryl to go and do in Italy and uh, they were sort of like, well, what, what should we do with it? And they, 
and they weren't allowed to give the money to Beryl. They, they, there was this great exchange of letters and they'd written to the British Cycling Federation and they were like, no, if you give her that £50 or £40 or whatever it was that was left over, it might have been, been a bit less than that. Um you that will break that will convene her amateur that will break her amateur status and she'll never be allowed to cycle for britain again you know <laughs> so they had to find but but they said it is okay to buy her something and uh so she chose a, a record player and there's a, a letter she wrote back to them saying you know really polite so sort of graciously thanking them for this uh this this gramophone record player that she wanted and uh, as i say denise was like oh i wondered i wondered how they afforded that <laughs> you know where, yeah. where that came from you know that was, so that's so one that, of those bits where the, the, you you knew more about the family for certain things yeah yeah because as i say beryl wasn't one for um sort of talking about things that much you know when when mm. she, she she had cat she got cancer later in life and had to go for an operation and uh uh for mastectomy and uh um uh Denise said oh she didn't tell me till she was in hospital and she was kind of like why why didn't you come and see me sooner and she's like well I didn't I didn't know (laughs) so that was uh that was just how 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 it was I think and and that was the way they you know they were the way they were so yeah she she did she did learn a bit from um from from uh the book as well which was nice obviously I learned much more from her but Mm -hmm. she did learn something from the book and it was amazing what what she's what she's turning down to to keep that amateur status, you know, things like you know contracts from rally. I, I know they got like a, a, a the, the cycling industries federation, you know, gave them a, 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 an early version of the Reliant Robin, which was a yes. which was a like a a, a rally branded uh, car originally. Um, so they got that. So that that was that was one thing which they were, but they were basically she could have got massive like Reg Harris style contracts yes. if she had have gone you know one way, but she was very adamant that she didn't want to go that way. Yeah, and Reg Harris was trying to get her to because mm. I think he saw an opportunity. I sense he saw an opportunity to to sort of represent her because he wrote this great article about you know she should turn professional and she could have a future on the on television and after dinner circuit and sort of earn money in that way. But that was when she was only about, it was after she'd won about her fourth world title. So she would have only been in her mid twenties at that point. I mean, she cycled for another, she was winning titles for another 20 years after that. And it's so misunderstood what she stood for and what she loved doing this idea that she wanted to be a celebrity rather than a racing cyclist you know, it just couldn't have been anything further from the truth she never she never had a tv in the in her house because she thought that it might distract her from cycling you know never had a phone in the house because she thought she didn't want to be distracted from her, what, what she needed to do for her cycling so the idea that she wanted to be a sort of use it to be a kind of sporting celebrity was just so far from what 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 she wanted to do i imagine the money at some point must have been tempting they came there was you know it's as i say it's in she describes it in some cycling weekly articles of the time you know rally would turn up they they were living in a two-bedroomed um council house in in morley you know charlie would do the bikes in the corridor of this um council flat um, it was it was a, 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 a I had a look at it. It was just blocks of house, you know, housed flats. And he would do the maintain all the bikes in the in the sort of freezing cold corridor in the winter of the of this of this um, uh, place in Morley where they, they lived 
up until she was five they moved when she was she'd already won five world titles when they moved and rally kept coming to this to this address with you know different contracts um for her but she always she always said no but it must have been i imagine there must have been some temptation because you know, they 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 were living very much week to week in terms of being able to afford um to to cycle they both worked and uh the working was just to facilitate being able to pursue her her passion so i guess there must have been a temptation but she knew that it would have as i say because of this strict enforcement between amateur and professional she knew that it would have been the end of her um, ability to race basically in 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 all the things that were meaningful to her so it was absolutely the right choice for her and just so again kind of there's something so noble about her career you know now where we see sort of modern sport it would be so different now there's something so pure and genuine and uh about it and i actually in fairness you know modern sports people i think at root still have that basic passion for what they do you know it's it's probably not their fault that there's all the other stuff that's attached to it now but i think that can change how they view their sport with some for sure but it never beryl never faced that because she just she just was completely amateur completely did it for the love of uh, the love of it we we do share a sponsor in that uh, she got a a bike from ron kit ron And I also was sponsored in the 1980s by Ron Kitching, who, who gave me stuff. Um, but then Ron Kit gave, you know, lots of cyclists yes. uh, uh, stuff in obviously at Yorkshire and, and Rudding Park in, in Harrogate, which was which is very much um, where, where Ron Kitching was from. So she got a she got a, a Ron yeah. Kitching bike. So she, she she rode that, but really didn't get a great deal else, did she? She wasn't she wasn't like, you know. No, absolutely dripping with with because she just couldn't. No, the only things that she would get, she she got she got this Reliant Robin car in 1960, or the family did, three-wheeler, which Charlie would use to... Or it wasn't a Reliant Robin, as you say. It was a three-wheeler. It was an early version of a three-wheeler. The Reliant Robins mm. came later, um, and they would use it. it. And there's photographs in the book of it, you know, parked by the side of the road in Belgium, and, and Denise and Charlie were sleeping in the back of it, whilst Beryl was becoming world champion in Liège. Mm. I mean, just extraordinary kind of stories of, of and, and this car went and became a bit of a sort of um uh renowned sort of thing around the country because it would it would easily tip apparently so it would quite often it would quite often capsize in sort of ditches when charlie was driving around the the roads trying to keep up with where beryl was and people would have to come and sort of push it back upright and stuff like this so i heard lots of funny stories about this car it was very well known to everybody so they got that car in 1960 as a sort of reward it was uh for for becoming she was double world champion that year and other than that there was a shoemaker that would that would um i don't know if they they were made any cheaper she'd have these quite often red shoes by someone in northampton called peter salisbury who would make these custom beautiful leather red shoes for her i don't know the exact arrangement as i say in terms of paying but ron kitchen um charlie worked uh, when they moved to harrogate in 1976 charlie worked in his bike shops and uh i think she more or less had the run of of things there it wouldn't have been a formal relationship because 
you couldn't be sort of sponsored, as I say, because of these rules about amateur and professional. But from what Denise tells me, I think I think she pretty much, you know, she could she could borrow whatever she wanted from the bike shop by then. And obviously, Ron Kitchen was pretty happy because his his uh, his bikes were always in the sort of cycling magazines because she would nearly all her records were on these sort of Ron Kitchen um, bikes. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think she had some help later on in that regard. Uh, but other than that, nothing, you know, absolutely nothing. And and, and it would, in fact, be if contravened um, the, the rules if, if she had. So she would you know that there, there was there was there's some receipts at the BBC archive of her sort of, um, you know, claiming very precise expenses when mm. she went and did sort of record breakers or something like that. And she wouldn't, you know, very fair with what she claimed. She wasn't there was no sort of making any money out of um out of cycling and she did tons of things for nothing that were sort of promoting cycling in terms of sort of tv appearances or even you know she did a load of promotional stuff for the aa bizarrely and she apparently got paid nothing for it but it was at that time it was kind of like the prestige of being invited to shows or being invited to things was she she she, she would say well i want you know i've got to i re- i'm representing cycling as a sport and cycling was quite a minority sport at that time. So she thought that it was important that cycling was represented and it was a sort of honor for cycling to, to, to go to these things. So it was very much mm. that way around um, in, mm. in her career. I'd very much like to talk about some sexism uh, in cycling. And that, 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 that absolutely stands out in the book, how staggeringly uh, the challenges that all women were, were facing in, in that era, not just Beryl, but all women. Um, but for now, I'd like to actually cut to a commercial break. So let, let's take this away with uh, David. Hello, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and, of course, the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn build bikes that make it easier for you to replace car trips with bike trips. Part of that is being committed to designing useful bikes that are also fun to ride. But an even greater priority for Turn is to make sure that your ride is safe and worry-free. And that's why Turn works with industry-leading third-party testing labs like EFBE and builds its bikes around Bosch e-bike systems, which are UL certified for both electric and fire safety. So, Before you even zip off on your turn, fully loaded and perhaps with a loved one behind, you can be sure that the bike has been tested to handle the extra stresses on the frame and the rigors of the road. For more information, visit www.turnbicycles.com to learn more. And now, back to the spokesman. Thanks, David. And we are back with uh, Jeremy Wilson and Jeremy, as, as I'm sure you, if you've been listening to the, the, the rest of the show, you'll know, has wrote this incredibly fantastic uh, multi-award winning book on BB, Beryl Burton. And, and before the break there, I was, I was kind of mentioning to, 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 to Jeremy if he could talk us through some of the amazing sexism uh you know we think of today as it being fairly bad and it still is bad you know you know the parity in 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 prizes all this kind of stuff but back in the you know the the, the heyday when when bell was racing 50 60s and, and early 70s it was off the scale 
the, the, the sexism and the challenges that women riders had to had to face back then, even though they were clearly, as as Jeremy talked about with the, the Licorice All Sorts story, she was as good as, if not better, than than many of the top men of the of the day. So, Jeremy, tell me about the kind of challenges she faced with officialdom. So with the, you know, the British Cycling Federation, with the UCI famously, you know, what, what did she have to, to, to get above and beyond before she even had to, you know, athletically uh, win? Well, she was, she was very unfortunate in one respect because um, she was, a, came along in a sport that where women weren't allowed in the Olympics. So if she was an athlete, a, a runner, athletics um or or swimmer she would have that they were into the olympics 50 years before cyclists but for whatever reason the uci which is the world governing body was very sort of male dominated um body and uh, wasn't much interested in in promoting women's cycling and it was only it was actually a, a british woman called eileen gray who was the great champion for getting women's cycling recognized and beryl was Whilst she was unlucky in that sense that she didn't have those competitions available to her, Commonwealth Games as well wasn't in was the same position. Eileen Gray was successful in lobbying the UCI to have a women's world championship event from 1958 onwards, and Beryl kind of first reached world class level in the late 1950s. So she was fortunate in that she at least coincided with world championships, but only very basic amounts of world championships. So it was a road race, a pursuit on the track, which is a timed three kilometer race and a sprint on the track. So there's just three events open to women, which meant Beryl could go for two of those, which was the road race and the time trial. She wasn't a fast sprinter it's a completely different discipline they weren't actually her best events because now there's a time trial had there been a time trial she would have been invincible for 25 years maybe 20 years something like that i mean she was way better at time trialing than than the, the shorter three kilometer pursuit or a road race but she had those events available to her and she was seven times world champion in those events still no British cyclist has ever been a double world road race champion apart from Beryl um, and no British and no cyclist in the world has won as many pursuit medals as her. So she still excelled, even though these two events weren't her absolute best events. But the sort of su- surrounding stories of, of the challenges women faced, even in these events, even though they had them, were vast because they would always sort of not be given the, the the tires or the kit that the men would. They were always given less money for accommodation, less riders were allowed to go who were women. And also the schedule, the UCI schedule would just shunt the women's races whenever there was a gap in the programme for the men. So they never knew when they were going to race. So but when they were riding, they would spend, they'd arrive at the track at sort of seven or eight in the morning and often be there till like midnight and Beryl might not know when her sort of world final would be exactly because it was always done at sort of discretion of the uh, organisers and the organisers were this sort of male orient- male committee and they kind of saw the women's races as sort of an add-on that weren't really that important. So she had that throughout her world world championships career. I think where she was fortunate was the club scene in, in, in Britain, as we touched upon, the, the club that she joined Morley it had women in it and it was very sort of family progressive um, club in, in Yorkshire. Other 
cyclists of the time would tell me very, very different stories. You know, a lady called Val Baxendine, who rode with Beryl in the World Championships in East Germany, she um, wrote a letter to try and join her local cycling club and, and was told, well, you can, you, can, you can come and make the teas for us at the event, but you can't join the club. Um, Eileen Cropper, another lady from Bradford who was uh, knew Beryl very well, she said that she was allowed to join the club, but she would they would put because the, they didn't like her getting faster. She said the lads would put bricks in my my saddle bag when we went out cycling to to slow me down. And and the prizes for women as well were, were you know it's almost quite comical now looking back. But there'd be things like hair curling tongs, um, a pouch of washing powder, and stuff like that would be what the the women were given if they won if they won something. Which um, and, and just the way that women cycling was reported as well was was you'd be I'd be sacked on the spot if I if I sent in anything that was resembled what you would read in the sort of cycling magazines and national newspapers at the time. You know, because the York the Yorkshire housewife, the Yorkshire housewife kind of tag but, that kind of thing. Yeah, but also sort of um, you know slender legs that that would be easy on the eye for any man mm. or stuff like you know. Mm vivacious um bubbly you know good looking bubbly personality it was all very commenting on 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 the appearance of of the cyclists as much as what they actually were doing but that was obviously Mm. normal at that time because there it was in in sort of print and wasn't really um you know it it was sort of accepted of, of that's how it how it was so very very different times but obviously Beryl was vital because although she wasn't a great one for sort of she wasn't sort of out there campaigning all the time to for 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 inclusion in the way that Eileen Gray as I say she was her great champion was but what where Beryl was so crucial was just because she was so good athletically so extraordinary she completely changed perceptions of of women women's athlete women athletes and women's sport and what they were capable of because this was a time when women weren't allowed to do marathons in 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 athletics Mm. um they didn't think that it was almost safe for women to to push themselves in in long endurance sport and then there was there was this woman that was actually beating the men in these events so it completely changed how how women's endurance sport was viewed and and respected as well because you couldn't obviously not respect somebody who was better than the better than, than the men at the time. So you had, I suppose, this kind of mixture of things. I did, but I did, in fairness, sense that that British time trial scene was was in the context of a lot of sport was quite pro- quite progressive in in its sort of welcoming way. And and now actually, the men who I who rode with Beryl, they they love talking about her, love her, you know, love. She's a sort of figure that you know on the sort of facebook pages of of this sort of older cycling in the 60s or these um you know they barrels are sort of absolute legend to these men that were, were sort of regularly kind of beaten by her there was one guy that said um uh that he, he was a good very good cyclist in himself and he, he was quoted as saying if if beryl burton ever beats me i'm gonna bury my bike you can bury my bike in the garden and his brother was a very good, good, um, very great rider, Ray Booty, who who was the first rider to to cycle under four hours for a hundred miles. And he, there was a speech he gave, and he was telling the story of what his brother said about Beryl Burton, and he sort of just ended his speech with uh, 
both events came to pass. <laughs> I he got beaten by Beryl and he had to bury his bike. I don't know if the second is strictly true, but um they had to get used to you know, they had to get used to the fact that there was this woman who was stronger than them. And there was so many stories that I would hear along those lines they're kind of like folk hero type stories there was a guy called Roy Caspel who was the national 12-hour champion men's champion and uh, he and Beryl did a 100 mile time trial one morning and they were both they were first and second in the event but Roy Caspel just beat Beryl they were both under four hours for 100 which was very very rare for a man or a woman at that time and he narrowly beat Beryl but Beryl didn't like the fact that she had she had lost and so she challenged him to to go for another ride through the Yorkshire Dales on the same day and apparently he he sort of uh they went and he, he sort of felt for his honor he had to say yes and he came back and one of his club mates said that when he came back he was just begging for mercy he sort of was uh an absolute um and he's actually said he's she's um I can't remember the exact words but it was it was, it was a, a mess or something yeah. he's like he's She's not seven bells. I was a wreck. Yeah, or something like that. And she was mm-hmm. a five foot six inch woman, nine, you know, eight and a half stone through. This guy was sort of six foot two at the absolute mm-hmm. peak of his powers. No, so she's just in terms of the respect that I think women's sport gave, she was hugely important. And the other thing that she did do, she campaigned to have men's and women's races in the time trials together. So I mean it was a probably quite a from Beryl's point of view, a selfish thing because she wanted the competition. She wanted to ride in the men's races as well. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. she was successful in, in, in that sort of campaign that she had, but that mostly she was, um, mostly she was, uh, important. I think in that fight for equality, just because she was so extraordinarily good. Um, as I say, someone called Eileen Gray was this amazing campaigning figure, um, in the committee rooms of, of uh, the, the British Cycling Federation and the UCI. But there were lots of, Beryl would have lots of problems throughout her career with the BCF, the British Cycling Federation. They were they were always quite awkward with what she wanted to do and would try and get her to do different events and things like that. But quite interesting and quite another thing, I think that's a characteristic of someone who's hugely successful. Even when she was very young, she really stood up for herself and she'd do what she wanted to do, what she believed was right. Um, and uh, I think that's it. You know, wasn't worried about fitting in and doing, you know, not not ruffling feathers. She would she'd do exactly what she thought was right. And if they didn't like it, you know, hard luck. And they would threaten a few times with her sort of deselection from world championships because she would insist on doing lots of time trialing and they wanted her to focus on other events. And uh, they always back down in the end because it would have looked ridiculous if they didn't select her for these races. So she, she had quite a sort of fractious relationship with the, the governing bodies at different points in, in her career. So in the book, you, you, you very, very incredibly well demonstrate how you know, amazing she is <clears throat> as, as a sports person in general compared to other sportsmen and how she ought to be up there with you know all the 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 sporting greats and then you mentioned in in the book about how in 2016 the telegraph your paper uh (laughs) is one of the culprits of 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 not because they placed her 85th 
in the list of greatest British sports people, you know, behind Gavin Hastings and Sandy Lyle. Now, do you think, I know this is a very, very difficult uh, question for me to ask or for you to, to answer, but do you think with your book now, especially as winning so many awards, do you think she'll be much, much further up that list now? That you've, you've yeah, elevated her? She might with be. Your... I, I would hope so. I think, obviously, you know, it's going to have passed, it's not going to have sort of, not everybody's going to have noticed notice this and and other things that have been done to promote what she's you know to to amplify her achievements but I think she would be now yeah I do think I do think people and something that's really interesting I don't know if people are just being polite but when the title in search of Britain's greatest athlete I sort of thought I'd have a few people going sort of yeah right or no no that's ridiculous for this reason or what you know whatever just there's nobody's even tried to argue with it at all the the times and the financial times um reviews sort of both both of them said it's not hyperbole the 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 title and i haven't come across anyone that sort of really sort of thought no when you stop and think about it that's a sort of there's a fair case to make there so I, i don't i think she would be a lot higher um there was a sort of poll of the sports journalists association a couple of years ago for the greatest british women's athlete and um she wasn't even mentioned in this poll and I I, I I I was sort of do I sort of kick off on social media about it and I, I thought I'll wait till I've done my book I don't want to you know it's sort of it's a bit early to sort of and I think Jessica Ennis Hill was sort of um named as the sort of greatest ever um British Britain's greatest ever sportswoman and you know as much as Jessica Ennis Hill is is fantastic and I'm not sort of trying to knock what she's done you know if had Beryl had an Olympics open to her she in a time trial uh, she would have won the time trial in my opinion every year from 1960 to 1980 which is six Olympics add in add in the pursuit road race she would have won a few of a few pursuits for sure maybe one road race something like that you know, you're looking at sort of Redgrave, Times, Wiggins, mm. and then a sort of Tour de France. If a t- women's Tour de France was available to her, she would have annihilated the field in a, in a in an in an endurance event of that type, day to day, being having to ride long miles day after day. I mean, that would have suited her perfectly. So on that on that yeah. subject, then let's talk about you know bringing her into the modern day. Let t- tell tell me about the uh, the wind tunnel. And and you you put a you know the rider on on the same bike because you got you got the bike and, and you've made conclusions from that. So just tell us about that bit. Yeah, well, I wanted to try and find a way to sort of benchmark what she'd done, and I knew that what, what she'd done was so phenomenal. Her times because her times at the time, her, her records at the time were um, the the twelve hours we touched on was was actually in excess of the men's record of of, of the day. But the hundred, the fifty, hundred miles, fifty miles, twenty-five miles, and ten miles were all very close to the the men's record of the time, way closer than um, you would normally get, not just in cycling but in athletics swimming records. So she was obviously highly unusual in terms of how good she was, and her records lasted um, between thirty-five and fifty years, which again is just completely unheard of, particularly in a sport where technology. Um, advances were so so big you know it'd be completely unheard of in athletics but you're only really changing the the shoe there or swimming where you're just changing the trunks you know it's fairly marginal differences here we're talking about a sport with the 
carbon fiber bikes, the um, aero bars, the helmets, the clothing, vast, vast improvements. And yet her records still lasted, you know, the 12 hour record lasted half a century. So I knew that I knew that she must be athletically completely out 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 of the park um unusual so um i was speaking to chris boardman about it uh, i interviewed him and we were talking about beryl burton and he'd you know he knew her. he got he he'd got her autograph as a kid he got approached to her at a race and he said well we and i sort of said is there a way of modeling it because um he he did a he did a, a the hour record on a super bike and then he did he did the what they call the athlete's hour which was on an old school bike with dropped handlebars and there was about uh, six or seven kilometer difference in an hour in the two records and I sort of said how you know could you and anyway there's a a, a wind tunnel at Silverstone which which the a lot of the professional teams and top amateur riders use to to measure different bits of equipment because they can objectively just analyze the difference in times of of, of various changes you can make to the bike or your position so um, a guy called Dr. Xavier Disley does this for, for some professional teams and, as I say, top athletes and top. And he's trying to invent things as well all the time to make the bikes faster. And he was like, yeah, we could do that. You know, it's not not that difficult, really. You just need to get somebody in the wind tunnel on Beryl's old bike or, or a bike similar to Beryl's old bike, similar build of person, um, old clothing. You know, he, he even said... Jolly wig. Jokingly, he said, if you can get a wig, that would be good. And I was like, right, okay, we'll get a wig. He didn't think I was too, but I did. I had to save it down to get it to, to the right barrel look. But I was pretty, look at the photos, they're pretty close. Mm. To yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we got a cyclist called Jessica Rhodes-Jones, who's a, a, a good time trialist now. Um, and she rode Beryl's bike with the wig was was kind, kindly put the wig on and and some of the old Morley cycling club mm-hmm. um lent me the kit and and we did the same um with her super bike now with all the uh, carbon bike mm. aero um clothing and handlebars and everything and he was you basically just measure the drag effect in the wind tunnel of the two and he from there he could then calculate what Beryl's times would have been on the modern kit and she came up faster still than the current record at 25 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles and 12 hours. So all we were doing was literally changing the kit, nothing else. So you would have literally, if you could have picked up Beryl Burton from 1967 and plonked her in a time machine and plonked her on a super bike, and, you know, she might have needed a day or so to get used to it. Although Jessica told me it's much easier to ride the the, the new bikes than the old, the, the one Beryl was riding, they're much less comfortable. Um, she would have still been beating the records that, that are out today, despite um, changes in training, diet, sports science, everything else. We're just literally, all we're, we're doing is picking Beryl up as an athlete and plonking her forward sort of 55 years which i think is and he said to me um dr disley who who did it he said i don't think you could get an athlete in any sport where you could do that he, he just couldn't believe that that was possible because even as i said in athletics and swimming the technological advances are much much um smaller but the the, the improvements in 50 years are still absolutely massive you know so um 
it just kind of underlined again. I I, I stayed out of the calculations. I wasn't like, you know, I said to him, just do it. I, I kind of expected it to show something amazing, but because, because of the reasons I said at the start, but you, you, you obviously don't know what he's going to come back with. So I was, you know, selfishly, I suppose I was pleased that it showed how remarkable she was, but not, not completely surprised. I would have been more surprised if if it was i mean it, you know that the 12 hour record was only first beaten 5 years ago so i couldn't see any way in the world that 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 wouldn't wouldn't be much faster if she wasn't on the the, the if she was on the same kit that they use now but uh, yeah as i say i sort of stood back and um let him let him work it out so yeah it was a great, a great it, and it's actually that's got quite a lot of interest as well you know that you could do something a bit different and something that sort of fairly objective obviously there's going to be it, you can't do something absolutely perfect to the second but it's it's a fairly um good 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 guide i think to how how good she was mm. yeah it's a fascinating part of the book there's, there's tons of fascinating parts of the book of course so i've i've made thousands of notes here and i i, I could absolutely talk all, all day with you and i am very very aware that we have actually been talking for an hour and a half now, <laughs> uh, uh, jeremy which is an awfully long time so thank you for that um let, let's 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 kind of end even though i i could talk all day uh, with you uh, about barrel but let's just because she's clearly hard as nails in 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 many different uh aspects of her life uh but let's just just about this one and we, i did talk i did say that we, we would bring uh yvonne uh, renders the, the great flemish rider uh, back in and that's just in one of the rides and this is what yvonne didn't know uh this, this particular bit so just tell me about the ride where charlie <clears throat> excuse me beryl's husband uh she she she's basically had an injury yes and she's been, in effect, tied to a track bike uh, with with a, a, a leather toe strap. So, so tell me about that because that 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 definitely tells you a lot about her as a person, as a rider, as an athlete. Yeah, that was an amazing, amazing story. She um, so she was warming up for the World Championships. Um, I'm off the top of my head. I remember it was Paris. I think it would have been sixty five, right? But she was warming up with a lady called Val Rushworth, who was a, a sprint, one of the British sprinters. So she was able to help me a bit with this story as well. Um, but it's in Beryl's. Beryl does tell this story in her book, Personal Best, as well. And she um, one of the male cyclists that they were warming up with actually just moved out across and wiped her out when, when they were do, riding around the track to warm up. Um, Beryl went down and... Uh, great pain in her wrist and they didn't know what it was is it a good a good example of the sexism Eileen Gray the British team manager wanted to take her to the medical sort of center to get this looked at and they wouldn't let her go in because she needed to be accompanied by a male doctor <laughs> they needed to be accompanied by a man so the British women's team manager was not good enough to to accompany Beryl to get this checked out so in the end she found um, a medic from another team who, who sort of looked at it and they didn't think she was going to ride and it was obviously really painful. Um, and in the end, it was, well, what do we do? And they gave her an injection which numbed the pain, but she lost all feeling in her in her in her, her hand, so she couldn't she couldn't clinch the handlebars with one 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 of her hands. So she could with one. So she's effectively riding one handed in a way. And uh, they kind of thought, well, she won't, she won't be able to ride 
you know, there's no way she can ride. And she, 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 I think from memory, she did this in this. It was before the semi-final. She rode the semi-final with it strapped and got and and won. And then she was into the final against Yvonne Renders. And that was one of the, the times where she didn't win. She was silver medal that year. But obviously she was a huge disadvantage because of the fact that she had no feeling in one of her arms. But nobody could believe that she would actually ride. Val Rushworth said you couldn't believe that she would she was going to ride. But that was I think that was just that mentality of you sort of you get on with it. You get get on with it. It's kind of like her, her, what she would say about things. And, you know, she had many crashes in her life and it, it was always she was always back on her bike as quickly as possible. Um, but just amazing, really, because you would because it's not just the the um, being one handed. It's not just the steering that would have been difficult. A lot of the power where you grip kind of comes from comes from your arms. It would have so it would have must have been really difficult to con- not just control the bike, but go full out and then just probably the whole shock of it. But that was what so they when you say, str- when you say strapped. You know, people might think, oh, you know, people have put. Um, bandages around it but this is actually literally strapped to the handlebars with a leather toaster yeah and they just that was that was i guess that was the, those sort of straps were what they used to kind of transport a lot of things at that time mm. bike related things you know on the sort of roof racks and stuff like that so they were able to hold her the one thing i didn't do was find a picture of this which i would have loved to have found the the the, the Finding the photography of the era was a whole nother kind of journey of discovery as well, which was which was great fun, but hard work. And um, I didn't find I wanted to find a photo of that race, but I, I don't know if there's one out there. So I'm going by the kind of how it was told to me um, in it. But as I say, Val Rushworth was there and I met her. And uh, it's recorded in Beryl's book as well. So, um, but she wasn't one that would make a thing of it. You know, she didn't tell, Renders didn't know really what what was happening. And in another race where she had a knee injury, when she, she didn't, she was going for this record for 24 hours. She didn't sort of tell people that, about the injury afterwards. It was almost deemed bad sportsmanship to kind of talk about, talk about why you didn't win in the immediate aftermath so a lot of these stories would come out some time later because it was that was just the way you just sort of got on with it and uh but yeah amazing story there was another one where she did a two-up time trial where you ride with somebody else and she had a a guy called Malcolm Cowgill he's the guy that's got her rainbow jersey Mm. preserved and she touched his back wheel and went down on a dual carriageway and uh, the blood sort of pouring down her face, uh, her legs, and on her bike. And he went, 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 stopped to to check she was okay, and and kind of thought, you know, oh, there's no way we're going to finish. You know, he said, should we get an ambulance? What do you want to do? And she was like, no, we're going to finish. And she got back on the bike, and, uh, and they said she was like cycling in front of me, shouting at me to go faster, whilst bleeding away on the road. And and they actually won this two up event where you did a you do a time trial with somebody else so that was her that was her mentality you know there was what a, a, an anecdote when um her daughter denise was they were they were warming up together for the world championship road race and her daughter crashed across quite a busy road and knocked herself out on the side of the road and i said to her what did you know what did your mum say and she said oh no she completed her warm-up you know <laughs> which was a bit like crikey that's pretty um pretty hard you know pretty tough 
mentality. But I think that was that was kind of the approach to sort of injuries and crashes and that. that if you if you can if you can physically find a way of carrying on, you just get on with it, basically. And, I mean, there's, there's so much we could talk about because because clearly there was there was a much more you know with the rivalry with with Denise later in our life and you know events and you, you show the photographs in the, in the book where she's not even looking at her daughter so there's, there's tons of stuff where we could we could carry on going but I'm going to recommend people just you know we're going to have to you know, we can't just carry on talking all day <laughs> uh, but I recommend people to just go and get your book uh, and, and 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 read it cover to cover and just be amazed uh, by the 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 life of Beryl Bodden. Now, my friend Dave, uh, who we were writing a few weeks ago, he has read your book. Okay. He recommended it to me anyway. And, you know, I, I, at that point, I hadn't read the book. But the only anecdote I could tell at that time was the, the licorice all sort uh, <laughs> anecdote. Uh, that's the one I knew uh, very well. And now I've got so many more anecdotes. So thank you for for absolutely going, you know, so deep into into the life of Beryl Burton that we now have all these anecdotes, including strapping, uh, uh, being strapped to a, a track bike in a in a championship, which is which is amazing. So your book has has absolutely uh, opened many people's eyes. I'm sure who who weren't aware of her story. Hopefully outside, absolutely outside of cycling, but just. For, for now, as, as, as we'll wrap up, can you please tell us where we can get this book um, and, and, and how much it costs? Give us, the, give us the biography of your book. Yeah, I think it's available, you know, from all certainly independent stores, Waterstones, Amazon, Profile Books was the publisher. So I think all the kind of outlets that you would expect to be able to to get a book it's it retails at 20 pounds but i think that it is a hardback book and it's pretty you know it's fairly a lot of photos and a, a lot a lot in there um but i think it's sort of 15.99 or something like that on amazon i noticed so it it varies slightly the the price the exact price of it so uh yeah but it's it's pretty widely available Thanks to Jeremy Wilson there, and thanks to you for listening to what has been a much longer than normal episode of the Spokesman Podcast. A click-through to Jeremy's book and a transcript of our mammoth conversation can be found on the show notes at the-spokesman.com. And this has been episode 315 of the Spokesman Podcast, brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. The next episode will be Milan-flavoured. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.